Hey everyone, welcome back to the i5 Corridor podcast. Tyson Alger here joined by Andrew Greif of the Los Angeles Times who just finished up covering the 14th World Athletic Championships, the first ones held in the United States. Uh, he had a great piece in today, uh, today's LA, actually it was probably the Sunday piece, wasn't it? It was today's. Yeah, today's LA Times, uh, despite huge success at World Championships, track popularity, popularity lags in the U.S., and I wanted to bring you on and talk about this piece a little bit because um, from from watching from afar, I didn't cover the World Track Championships, but it looked like it was, I mean, it was a success for the United States uh, athletically. Um, it seems like the people who went to the to the games or the 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 um, championships enjoyed themselves. But what what's kind of the overall big picture takeaway from a United States level coming out of these track championships, Andrew? Yeah, it's it's definitely the on track and off track perspective. Like on track, they had in Tokyo, the Olympics, the US men had a pretty um pretty down performance. They only had 10 medals, which was one of their lowest ever. Um, you know, they they really were, I think they had three sprint medals between the 100, 200, 400 and the short relay. And and here, um, the men had uh, I believe six of the gold medals of the US's 13. They had eight medals alone in the U S men's sprints. <laughs> so like they, it was a, I think a kind of a resounding rebound for sort of like probably the psyche of, uh, especially U S men's sprinting kind of re- refurbished their reputation. Um, you know, there was one day, I think it was Sunday, the, the third day when they set a record for winning nine medals in one day, like the most by any country in any single day at a world championship. So there were a lot of superlatives, to take away from the performance on the track that I think if you're USA track and field are really encouraging for trying to drive the popularity, because you look at Sydney McLaughlin, who had, I think, hands down the performance of the meet um, with her world record. She's only 22 years old. Uh, I think Mo, uh, who in the last 12 months has won an Olympic title and a world title in the 800. She is 22, I believe is what, or I think she's 20. Um, th- there's a lot of, uh, I think positive stuff where you, it's not just the next generation, like it's the current generation. that's also very young and they're right. producing. So if you're trying to hook track fans and you're trying to make track and field, the number five, most popular sport in the country by 2028, which is their goal, then there's a lot of positive building blocks there. But I think the challenge is that, uh, you know, there weren't that many sellouts. In yeah. Eugene, uh, I don't think that just anecdotally, I've heard that some of the businesses really didn't receive sort of the influx of visitors as they thought. And I think if you have one concern, it's like, if you know, if, if we couldn't drive that, um, you know, real buzzy atmosphere in kind of the capital of track in the U.S., you know, where else in the U.S. is going to enthusiastically welcome a meet like this in the future? Where, where's, where's the balance on that between obviously Eugene is probably the most concentrated uh, track community, um, but where's that balance out versus if you were to put it in just like a large population center where you can welcome in more international visitors and there's just more of a population base to draw upon? Yeah, I, I think that they, we had talked, uh, a small group of reporters talked to Sebastian Coe, who's the president of Track and Field's global governing body. Uh, the day before the meet ended and we talked about that a lot like the risks of putting it in eugene um where that you're sort of preaching to the choir 
you know, like everyone who shows up to the meet is probably going to be a track fan. You're probably not going to be converting a lot of casual people, um, the kind of fan they need to convert to become more popular, more relevant in the U.S. But he said, you know, like Eugene was the only city in the U.S. that raised its hand and said, we want this when they, this is 2015, 2014, when they were doing the bidding process. So like they didn't, they weren't spoiled for choices. Um, now maybe that changes in, in the future, but um, I, yeah, it's, I think they knew that if they put it here, they'd put it in a place that cared a lot about the product. And that was true. Like the, the crowds that were there were very passionate and very, um, very knowledgeable. And, and athletes talked about that a lot, how happy they were to be there. Um, but you know, it's also, um, it's also a small stadium, yeah. you know, they, they basically were selling 12,000 seats a night and they weren't selling out that every time. So it's, what, it's a tricky what, position. What's your perspective on that? Especially having, you were still working here at the time when this thing was kind of, this plan was hatched to, to host this thing. And obviously you have some, um, you know, history in, in your career with the old Hayward field, but like, you know, there was all the talk of like the expanded seating and Eugene, you know, how many people could Eugene accommodate and this and that, like, it seemed like on just like the regular Tuesday of, of this, of this, um, competition, like it, it seemed like all of that was just, cause I, I think the, the biggest crowd was 21,000. Is, is that about right? Yeah. Of ticketed fans, which doesn't include like, you know, people who have credentials, AKA media, right. athletes, officials, but yeah, 21,000 was the tops. Like, how, how do you think this kind of vibe and event felt compared to like how it was pitched and like what they kind of envisioned with, with, you know, this 10 day stretch of, of history in, in Eugene? Uh, yeah, I asked that exact question to Co and um, kind of one of his chief aides and they, they, you know, they said, they kind of said, we're not trying to kick the can down the road on your question, but we're going we're gonna to have to audit all of this. Like they wouldn't give like an immediate response, but they did seem like considering what they called economic headwinds uh, that make disposable income a little tighter these days that um, selling, they, they sold, I think the minimum was 10,000 tickets. So out of a 12,000 effective cap, like they felt, okay, it's, you know, 80%, 90%, that's, that's pretty good if that's the, the smallest. Um, at the same time, there were some, you know, athletics officials um, globally who really felt strong disappointment in mm -hmm. the attendance that um, that I've I've heard from. Um, so it's you know it's a it's a challenging thing. They um, they want these big crowds, but um, to do that, you sort of have to prime the the base, you know, and this was the way of doing it was coming to Eugene and bring it to a place that they knew would be enthusiastic. And it was, but I don't think it was as enthusiastically received as people thought, maybe because people, the locals, frankly have seen, I've heard people say they've been tracked out, you know, yeah. like they've been, they've had the, the PAC 12 championships, the Prefontaine classic, the NCAA championships, the U S championships, and now they have this. So I know people, you know, from family or friends of family who've said like, just kind of paying for tickets at that point was just not something right. they wanted to do, even though the competition was going to be unlike any other. It, it, it'll certainly be fascinating to watch to see if this ends up having how much of an impact this has towards their goal of becoming the fifth most popular major sport in the U.S. Because even like, you know, Sydney McLaughlin's 400 meter hurdles was probably probably the 
moment of the event, right? Just in terms of sheer domination, like what she would have finished. Wouldn't she have been a finalist in the regular 400 meters, like not hurdles? She would have beat, she would have beat two women, two of the world's best 400 meter runners open. Yeah. Like it's just, just incredible, ridiculous. And like, I, I did see a fair amount of that, like on Twitter online, but then like, if you flip flipped on sports center, I think it was like the number 10 thing. And there was like at number eight was just like a summer league block, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, there's still quite the uphill battle for it to go. And, and I, I do think they also missed out on, um, you know, if, if Devin Allen was one hundred one thousandth of a second slower, like, I, I think that probably would have had a lot of crossover appeal too. Yeah. That was, that was something that, um, you know, for as many people reacted positively to a McLaughlin or a Mo or um, the one, two, three sweep for the U S and the hundred and 200, there was also, Devin Allen disqualification where I saw it on social media, which can be a bubble. I understand that. But right. of a lot of people, track fans and otherwise, who are like, kind of like, why is this, does this sport do this to itself? Now, I mean, there are rules. And technically, you know, he, he reacted too fast to the rule. We all understand that. But um, there was sort of this general consensus. Like, why does track seem to shoot itself in its own spike? sometimes they, um, they need to get some nba refs out there who know how to swallow their whistle for the superstars just for the advancement of the games yeah it's you know i think that the co talked a lot about things that they want to think about going forward the question of what's next i think is kind of the most interesting question for track because once this thing is ended and he talked about how they are in the stages of developing a drive to survive formula one docuseries um, which obviously changed Formula One's uh, popularity in this country yeah. so much. I'm, I'm, I was up Sunday morning at six a.m. watching the French Grand Prix because of the documentary series. So. Yeah, so they want to do that. It's not they don't have a streaming network for it yet, but they're kind of in the very beginning stages of developing a series. Um, you know, they they want to do that. Uh, Co talked about working with NCAA athletic directors, who he invited to the meet to sort of say like, could we do something like this on your campus too? Like let's build out a, more of a hmm. purpose built track only stadium so that we have more options we could go to. Um, you know, he, like Co talked about really shortening the length of the track meet because 10 days is a long time. And he knows that he acknowledged it. He said that he doesn't want to ever turn his back on the history of the sport, but that format is tough. I think to really sustain um, the interest, even in a place like this, um, you know, you as we saw, do like, you think it would be better compressed down to like a five day thing, or if they just did it over two different weekends, it's, well, that's a good question. I think the tricky thing is you're going to have athletes who, in a lot of ways, your, your biggest stars want to double. And right. so Sydney McLaughlin talked about how one day she might move to the open four, you know, so you try to build that into your schedule. So you allow your best stars to be on TV more often like a Jakob Ingebrigtsen from Norway. He did the 1500 meter, 5,000 meter double. And like to maybe to the casual fan, you're like, I don't know who that is, but track fans really, really, really want to watch that guy race. And if you're setting the schedule such that he can only do one, you're, you're, you're handicapping yourself. Um, so there, there are considerations like that, that they're going to have to juggle with. How do we compress this while also allowing our stars to be on TV more often because the example was brought up in this meeting with Co. of think about Michael Phelps. Why did he become this world changing star? He was on TV for like 
two and a half weeks straight <laughs> yeah, every right. Olympics because he did yeah. so many events. Now it's different in swimming than track, but that is a consideration as they go forward, like to how they do the format. Yeah. Um, last thing before we get out of here, because I know you got a plane to catch to uh, go home, Andrew. You can you can finally go home. Um, I know you had to like approach this thing kind of like analytically and big picture and, and covering it for, as like a national newspaper, but just like spending 10 days at the world track championships and not, not your hometown, but your home state, like this big, like how much fun did you have? Like, what are just kind of your, your, your takeaways and, and like what, what memories are you going to take away from this thing? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm lucky enough that in this job, you know, I've covered a lot of sort of high level track meets at that stadium or on that footprint of the stadium. You know what I mean? Um, and so I guess the experience of watching a world record be broken running down the steps, trying to catch someone in the interview zone, uh, wash and repeat. That's sort of, I think that's, it's not a a unique experience. Uh, At at the same time, it was um, different, and especially pre-classics. You know, there's a lot of international competition there that is as good as any meet in the world of its kind. So um, I guess there wasn't this overwhelming feeling of, I can't believe I get to watch this because there's been a lot of meets that have been excellent. Right. Uh, that I've seen, but it was, um, it was, I think it was interesting walking on a concourse because it's so much of a different experience in this version of Hayward field than the old one where there wasn't much of an area to mix just because it was an older layout. And, and this way there's a lot more time to mix and, it, and you really did see people from all over the world, which was, which was kind of unique, um, you know, to see fans representing, you know, they had the Vuvuzelas from Jamaica um that was that was pretty cool because even at the olympic trials or um a pre-classic you it's gonna be a lot of just eugene folks right or springfield folks and this was obviously a different vibe and um that was kind of cool to be out in the restaurants sort of after the meet most nights and you you'd see or you'd hear just you know kind of a global perspective so i think that the performance the meet i'll remember is obviously mclaughlin doing that 50.68 run in the 400 hurdles and sort of putting that in the context of, uh, you know, she ran seven hundredths slower than Allison Felix did on her four by 400 meter relay leg. Or, <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty I mean, hard. If you really to want to start wowing slower. people, you, you tell, you say that's like 26 seconds faster than Tyson ran in the, <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in the pre-classic 400. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't see your name. I didn't see your name on the 800 sheet. Yeah, there's no way I was doing the media hundred this time. Uh, like, like, like you can you can keep like a somewhat like smiling face for over the course of like a four hundred. Like, if you do an eight hundred, somebody's taking some bad photos of you. Like that's yeah, that's I didn't want that. I didn't want my kids to see me like that. So, um, <laughs> I didn't do that one. But it was it was you know, it was a good experience for sure. It was yeah. um, as Co said, they want to be back in the U.S. It won't be Eugene, uh, but he wants to be in like Miami or L.A. or Chicago or a big, big market to really sort of try to, in their hopes, supercharge the fandom. I guess we'll see. Oh, I, I guess, I guess one last quick one for you, but just like, what does, where do you go next with Hayward Field? Like you just had the biggest event that you're ever going to hold. It's now, tricky because this what? is sort of why they built it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you're, I mean, you're frankly, it's not going to fill that stadium um, for pretty much any Oregon conference meet um you know kind of like regular season oregon meet so i'll be i'll be kind of curious if 
uh, I think Ken Go, our, our former colleague, wrote that uh, I thought it was a really fair and incisive column about how it's it's sort of this in this awkward zone where the stadium is palatial, it's beautiful, it's it's kind of maybe too small for these like mega mega meets. Um, but it's also maybe too big for sort of what it is going to be hosting um, most of the time. You know, even a pre classic. So it's it's in this kind of odd middle zone, and it. Um, I think he labeled it like a potentially a white elephant in in beautiful green, and um, I'll be I'll just be really curious what how how kind of how it's utilized in the future. I, I think I just solved it. Uh, Portland State football is still looking for a semi permanent home, twelve thousand seats. That's probably just about right for FCS. Uh, Barney, give us a call. Uh, Andrew, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate you. <laughs> Appreciate you taking the time. You're gonna to have to rip out the hydrant aprons to get the to get the end zones in, but it's you no, know it's worth it. Well, no, it's 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 like baseball. Like every field has its quirks. It's like uh, <laughs> the, the flagpole in Houston uh, back in the day. Anyways, uh, thanks for taking the time, man. Have a good flight. Go enjoy being home for a little bit. I very much appreciate that, man. Thank you. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.